Would you open with me in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, chapter 1. Last week, we closed off Zechariah with that kind of sweeping picture of what is going to come at the end of all things, when the king returns to claim his kingdom, when the Messiah comes back to his creation, some remarkable things happen. Uh, He rescues Jerusalem from that impending crisis and the invasion of the nation. He remakes uh, his creation. Jerusalem is exalted. Rivers of water flow out. He curses uh, the enemies that come against his people, providing this kind of crushing defeat in one day. Those that survive, he rules over as he extends his authority over all the nations, calling them to come to Jerusalem to worship. And those that don't find themselves under a punishment. It's this time when the king absolutely rules over his creation with a recognized sovereign authority. And at that time, he also restores his people. Uh, that beautiful picture that even the bells on the horses will be called holy to the Lord. What was common, what was profane, what was stained by sin, made holy and made fit for worship forever. It's a remarkable picture of what is going to come at the end of all things. A remarkable picture of God's faithfulness enduring all the way to the end. Um, And today we're going to move on to the book of Malachi. It's the final writing in our Old Testament, and that's an appropriate thing. It serves as the final warning to God's people. Uh, We know that after Malachi, there is a large chunk of silence, not ignorance, not abandonment by God, but this is God's final word to his people to prepare them for the good shepherd who will come. So if you're not there already, find your way to Malachi chapter 1. I'm going to read the first five verses, and it'll set the context for where we're headed today. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, fix our minds on that thought. Great are you, Lord. Israel lost sight of that. We are quick to lose sight of that. When circumstances become difficult or painful or uncertain, we are quick to forget the greatness of the God that we serve. So Lord, again, fix that. Establish it in our minds. And we ask that as we come before your word today, that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things. Help us to see. We bring darkness. We bring blindness. We bring uh, stubbornness. Lord, pierce that darkness. Soften our hearts and help us to see truth. And Lord, as we see the truth in your grace and through the power of your spirit, we ask that you would help us to walk in that truth. Help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling as sons and daughters of God. Lord, move us from knowledge to faith and from faith to action. We need your help to do all of these things. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen. Our lives are made up of transitions, movements from one thing to another. It might be from one job to another. It might be from one home to another. Uh, For some of us, it was like from one country to another. And these transition points, they're important. Uh, They're important because they can either strain and fray and kind of fracture the loose ends, or they can cause people to come together, to bind together, to work together, to find unity in the turmoil. Uh, 
It's those times of transition when we ask really important questions. Why are we doing this? Why do we do what we do? And should we continue doing this or should we do something radically different? And that's important because when we come to Malachi, God's people, Israel, are at something of a crossroads. There's a turning point here. Uh, they have gone from exile back into the land. And now they have been back in the land long enough that they are establishing what normal will look like for them as a nation. They are developing patterns that will characterize them as a people and we're going to see very quickly that they are not things that would honor God. And so God sends what is, in effect, the final warning. Uh, Malachi is going to deal with the hearts of the people uh, and give something of an ultimatum. Uh, make changes, assess what you're doing, repent and return, or there is nothing but judgment ahead for you. And we know historically, of course, that they don't listen. Uh, we know that after Malachi writes, it's 400 years of silence until John the Baptist bursts on the scene and shatters that silence from God. We know that when the Good Shepherd comes, the people's hearts, by and large, are not ready to receive him. We know all of that, but what we are here in Malachi is we're at that crossroads, we're at that transition point, we're at that final warning where God makes the sins of the people clear and calls them to a different course of action. And so today is all about questions. Uh, first of all, we're going to look at questions that deal with context. We're going to ask those kind of uh, interrogating questions that help us understand who wrote the text and when it was written and why it was written. And then we're going to see that the book of Malachi kind of circles around questions uh, that the author anticipates on behalf of the people. So first, let's work through those questions that we have to ask that help us establish the context for the book. And the first one that we always ask is who wrote it? Well, who wrote it and who was it written to? And that's given to us in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. First of all, this message is ultimately the word of the Lord. The ultimate author of all of Scripture is God. We cannot forget that. The Holy Spirit inspires his chosen prophets, his writers, to deliver exactly what God intended to his people. That's why when we talk about God's word, when we talk about scripture, we say that it's inerrant. We say that there are no errors here because God is the God of truth. He is the definition of truth. And so what he speaks, therefore, must be true. It's why we say that scripture has authority, that this is not just a book of suggestions, but that this book has the power to call us to action and the power to call us away from other actions because the God who spoke this word into existence is the God who is sovereign over all creation. Therefore, his word has authority over us. And beyond that, beyond the fact that God is the ultimate author, we see that he used a man named Malachi to write this. Malachi means my messenger. How appropriate uh, for the name of a prophet who would in fact be God's messenger. But other than that, we don't know anything about him. Uh, we don't know his family history. We don't, don't know what tribe he's from. We don't know his occupation. All we know is that God used this man Malachi to deliver uh, this critical message at a critical time in the lives of his people. Uh, when he wrote these words. They were given to the, from the Lord to Malachi for the people of Israel. And we have to kind of stop there for a minute because we've used Israel a couple of different ways uh, in the context of the minor prophets. You might remember, uh, we've gone back to this slide a bunch, uh, that when Solomon dies, the kingdom is divided. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom was called Israel. Samaria was its capital. It had its own uh, worship. It had its own line of kings. And Judah, an entirely separate southern kingdom there. Assyria wipes out the northern kingdom. Babylon deals with the southern kingdom. They're two separate entities. And as we've moved through the minor prophets, often the prophets have spoken to one or the other. 
A lot of times in the Minor Prophets, uh, a prophet will write to Israel, meaning intending the northern kingdom there. Understand that after the exile, when they come back from Babylon, uh, there is no more northern southern kingdom. They are essentially one people, a weak people, but they are one people. So uh, when Malachi talks to Israel, he's not talking about the northern kingdom that we might be familiar with. He's talking to the people of God as a whole. So uh, when we understand who wrote it and who we wrote it to, Malachi writes through the word of God to the people of God, Israel. The next question that we ask is when was it written? Sometimes in places like Haggai and Zechariah, we get uh, uh, the names and the dates of kings. Uh, This is the king that was ruling in Persia, and these are the months that we wrote it. We don't have any of that in Malachi. Uh, There's no introductory formula that says this is when this was written, or even this is what was happening. We have to kind of put together those clues from the context inside the book. But there is enough in the book to help us kind of understand when it was written. First of all, Malachi is always placed at the end of the Minor Prophets, has been historically. And while the Minor Prophets are not in strict chronological order, Malachi has always been considered to be the last of the writing prophets. So there's very strong uh, historical tradition that says he was the last prophet. Also, if you look at what he does write, there are some clues inside there. Uh, Malachi makes it clear that He's writing to a people with a rebuilt temple who have started practicing regular sacrifices again. So this has to be written after the second temple was rebuilt in 516 B.C. Um, More than that, he uses a word for governor in chapter 1 or a civil authority, a magistrate, uh, that was a Persian word. So it indicates that Persia is still kind of the ruling power at this time. So we're after Babylon and we're before the Grecian Empire. More than that, uh, Malachi writes about a lot of the same things uh, that Ezra and particularly Nehemiah write about. Now, Nehemiah was the governor over Jerusalem. He served for a time. He goes back to Persia for a period of time, and then he comes back, and he has to deal with a lot of the same problems that Malachi writes about. And so it is highly likely that Malachi either wrote during that time when Nehemiah was called back to Persia or during that second part of his term of, of governorship there. Uh, If you look in the little kind of timelines that you have in your flyers there, you'll see that a good date for this is probably about 430 B.C. So what does that mean for our timeline? It means that he writes about 100 years after the start of Zechariah's prophesying. And if Zechariah, uh, the last couple of oracles there, were written toward the end of his life, then he is at least 50 years after the last prophetic word from the Lord. So we turn the page in our Bible, and we're on the next book, but we've moved forward at least 50 years in the life of God's people there. And then we ask why. We have the who, we have the when, but why is Malachi writing? What are the major themes? Uh, what, are, what does he hope to accomplish here? By this time, we've got a long history with God's people, Israel. Uh, we know what's happened to them. We know that they've been given the law. We know that they've seen their country torn in two. We know that they've heard the voices of the prophets. We know that they've been carried off to exile. We know that they've been brought back into the land. Uh, they know that God takes sin seriously. They know that God will deal with the sin, not only of the nations, but that God will deal with the sin of his own people. They also know that God has given them some remarkable promises. Again, they have the writings of Zechariah by this time. They can see that God has a plan for them as a people, and that includes restoration. It it includes provision. It includes protection. It includes security. It includes the rule of this one Messiah who will kind of not only exalt him, but who will exalt his people as well. And we might think that that would be enough to kind of keep the people on track, 
that after all they've been through historically as a people, that maybe that's enough to at least kind of steer them down the right road, at least for a time, but that's not the case. Tragically, we see that Malachi writes to a people who are externally religious, but whose hearts are far away from God, who are so calloused that they don't even really understand how far they've fallen. That's why as Malachi writes, like I said, he uses these questions. And the questions that Malachi circles around aren't questions from God to the people. They're these uh, anticipated questions from the people toward God. And they really reveal a lot about how far their hearts are away from him. Uh, Because at this time, there's not much more that can be said. There's not much more that can be said that God hasn't already said. We are not going to see a lot of brand new material in Malachi that we've never seen before. He gives it depth. He gives it some pointed warnings. He speaks to them particularly, but the underlying themes are not brand new. God calls his people to obedience, to worship, to holiness, and God doesn't accept skin-deep worship, and that's really the heart of what is going on. And so God has this critical message for his people. There are no more warnings. This is it. This is your last chance to kind of look to the future, to make a change, and to move in a way that honors God. And I think that's going to be a very timely message for us. This is written to a people who are living a normal life, who are comfortable with that normal life, who aren't exactly sure how far off track they are. And I think that is a pointed and timely message for a church that often lives in comfort and convenience. So, With that background settled, let's jump into the text of the book itself, and we're going to see how the prophet engages the people. Uh, He's going to challenge their failure. He knows that he's talking to a people who won't be able to see how far they've fallen on their own, and so he asks a series of critical questions. We've moved from the contextual questions on to the critical questions now uh, that Malachi anticipates that really reveal the hearts of the people and show just how far they've fallen from true obedience. So today we're going to move through the first two chapters. And we're going to look at the three kind of important questions that form the first two chapters. And the first question uh, comes in verse 2 there. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Question number one from the people toward God that Malachi anticipates are, God, do you really love us? God starts with this clear statement, I have loved you. And instead of responding in humility and gratitude, the people are like, prove it. God says, I have loved you. And the people say, what are you talking about? How have you loved us? And by this time, my hope is that since we have spent just over a year in the minor prophets, you could answer that question pretty clearly, couldn't you? I mean, we have this history of God's faithful dealing with these people. How clearly could we answer that? God has given them his law which showed them how to live in covenant relationship with him, which showed them how to find blessing and provision and protection, and they broke it. God has given them his prophets, these warnings saying, come back, come back. I am here, I am waiting, come back. And they've rejected them and ignored them. God has disciplined them severely, not only in the land, but by exiling them from the land. But in his grace, he's brought them back. He's allowed them to be established as a people again. He's given him food, he's given him rain, he's given him his temple and his sacrifices. And they still sin. And so we see that right away, that question is not coming from a place of humility and brokenness. This is not like when Habakkuk said, Lord, what are you doing? Remember that when we went through the Habakkuk's prophecy and he asked, God, how long? How long is this going to happen? God, do you actually see what's going on here? That was driven out of a burden of frustration, but ultimately a trust in God's character. This is not that. 
This is God saying, I have loved you, and these people refusing to see God's love for them in their lives. This is the child whose parents give it food, clothing, a bed to sleep in, a phone to type on, and the kid's saying, you haven't really done anything for me. It's pretty galling. And here's how God answers that question. When the people say, God, how have you loved us, rather than immediately striking them from the face of the earth, this is what God says. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. And you say, that doesn't help anything. Why start there? Well, we have to understand who he's talking about. Jacob and Esau take us all the way back to the book of Genesis. God gives those remarkable covenant promises to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to give you land. A land for you and your descendants. I'm going to give you seed. I'm going to give you those descendants. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And that covenant promise goes from father to son. And Abraham does have a son. His name is Isaac. Isaac marries a woman named Rebekah. And Rebekah becomes pregnant with twins. And in her womb, those twins struggle together so mightily that she thinks she is going to die. She asks God, why is this happening to me? And God says, really, what's inside of you are the struggle between two nations. And then God says, but here's what's going to happen. The older is going to serve the younger. Before the boys are even born, God says the younger is the one who is going to bear the covenant line of promise. And then Esau is born, the oldest son. And Jacob comes out literally grabbing onto his brother's heel, and there's contention from the very beginning. Now, the people would know that story. But when God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, what they would also realize is that Esau was not just his brother, Esau was his older brother. And so by tradition, by legal right, by all expectation, Esau Esau should have been in the place of honor. Esau should have been the one to inherit the, the double blessing of the firstborn. He should have been the one to bear those covenant promises to the next generation, and yet God chose Jacob. God chose their father, Jacob. That's what God reminds them of. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. God reminds his people that he chose one over the other. He's reminding them of his choosing of them as a nation. That in his sovereign plan, in his sovereign will, before the boys were born, that God chose them. In fact, that's what Paul picks up when he addresses the same theme and when he quotes that passage in Romans 9. But what does that mean for them? The rest of verse 3 says, I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we're shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. How have I loved you? God says, I have chosen you. Think about your history. You were defeated. You were overcome. You were exiled. You were crushed by Babylon, but I allowed you to come back. And not only did you come back, you now live in a city with rebuilt walls. You live in a temple with functioning sacrifices. I restored you to the inheritance that should have been removed because of your rebellion. Now, what happened when Babylon invaded Edom? The same thing that happened everywhere that Babylon invaded. They crushed them and they destroyed them. Now, God had actually given Edom the land where they were. Those are Esau's descendants. But he made no covenant promises to restore them to that land, and they never do come back. The cities get populated again, but Edom is never again a power, a place of prominence, a place of any kind of wealth or prestige. It is essentially removed from history as an important people and place. God says, how have I loved you? 
Look at the distinction between you and your family, your cousins, the other side of that inheritance. Look at what my choosing has allowed you to be, a people in your own place despite what you did. God could point to 10,000 different things as a demonstration for his love, and yet when God wants to demonstrate his love most clearly, he says, the greatest thing that I've ever done for you is to choose you to be my people. And if you would only open your eyes, you would see that. And someday they will. Verse 5 says, your own eyes shall see this, and you will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. See, there's the opportunity for them to see this and glorify God. There's the opportunity for them to look at this and say, well, God obviously has control not only over our national history, but over the history of the nations. They refuse to see that right now. But again, we go back to places like Zechariah, and we know that one day their eyes will be opened, and they will see the sovereignty and the goodness of the glory of God exercised in the nations. But for now, they're so hard, they're so calloused, they're so stubborn, that they cannot even see that God loves them as a people. With that, Malachi moves on to the next question. It's a specific kind of condemnation to the priests. He's going to tell the priests that they have fallen woefully short of their role as teachers, as mediators of the people. Look at what he says in verse uh, where are we at? We're in verse six. He says, "A son honors his father and a servant his master." If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name? But here's the question. But you say, how have we despised your name? The priest's question is, what have we done? How have we offended God? And God starts with with a statement again. Before it was, I have loved you, and they questioned that statement. Now God says, look, fathers and masters, they get honored. Over the normal course of human events, people respond to authority with humility and obedience. Sons obey their fathers, generally. Servants obey their masters, generally. That is what you would expect, that people respond to the authorities that are placed over them. God says, If I am your father, if I am your master, where is my honor? See, the priest, above all the people, would have said, sure, God is our father. He brought us into being as a nation. They would say, absolutely, God is our master. He uh, dictates what should happen. But God says, you have given me no honor. In fact, you have despised my name. They acknowledge God with their lips, but they despise him through their actions. And the priests say, how have we despised your name? What have we done? How how have we gone on to offend God? And God outlines particularly what they're doing with the sacrifices. He says, you offer polluted food on my altar. You say, how have we polluted you? You say that the Lord's table may be despised. You offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? See, God says, you know what the standard is for your offerings, and you're falling woefully short. When they brought an offering under the old covenant, what was it supposed to be? In the law, the offerings were supposed to be what? perfect or as close as you could get you brought the best lamb in your flock you brought that guy on the upper left little fluffy pure and white everything working the best that you had what were they doing they were bringing the guy on the other side old gimpy or one eye they were bringing the lamb that was a little wobbly they were bringing the one that was a little deformed they were bringing the one that was a little sick in fact he might not make it to next season anyway so let's go ahead and bring that Uh, after all they would say an offering is an offering, a sacrifice is a sacrifice, and what does it make a difference to God what sheep we bring? Here's what God says. Will you offer blind animals? That's evil. 
When you offer the lame and the sick, it's evil. And he says, you present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? God says, would you bring that to the civil authority over you? If the governor called you to come, would you bring him that two-legged, limping animal and expect that he would have any favor toward you? Of course not. See, the problem is the priests are going to say, we are doing fine. We've got an altar. We've got a temple, and we're bringing the stuff. And as long as we're bringing the stuff, what difference does it make to God what stuff we're bringing? See, God says, it matters to me. And not only does it matter to me, look what he says in verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. God says, it would be better. I wish that someone among you had the guts to bar the doors on the temple shut. That's drastic. Here's the reality. No sacrifice, no worship is better than failed worship. No offering is better than an impure offering. God does not accept second best. God does not accept the leftovers. And the problem is not ignorance. They know what is right. They simply refuse to do it. And when God confronts them, when he tells them, look, this is what I expect, look how they respond to it. Verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. When God says, here's the standard, the people say, ugh, yes. Throw in the teenage eye roll picture that is in your head. That is exactly what he's saying right there. God says, this is what I expect. And the people go, I can't even with this. God's worship is a burden on his people. If they can't do it their way, they certainly have no desire to do it his way. And God says, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. You promise the best. You bring whatever you want. And you think God's fooled. See, the opposite of blessing is the curse. And the opposite of worshiping in uh, sincerity and purity of heart is to cheat. These people assume that they're getting away with worship. They are cheating God. And God is not fooled. God says, don't expect a blessing. Instead, he's going to send a curse on you. Uh, why? Well, because he is a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nation. Again, that reminder that the king is coming. It, it was good to point them forward. They need to remember those promises of Zechariah, but if you remember all the promises of Zechariah, what did he say? This happens when you're obedient. And when the king comes, what does he deal with first? Sin. The king does not simply come and magically bless all of his people. The king comes and he deals with sin and rebellion wherever he finds it. And these people are in danger of walking into judgment, assuming that they are doing just fine. And as he comes into chapter 2, he, he sets up this, this graphic picture. Uh, priests, this command is for them. If you don't honor me, then I'm going to curse you. And he says, verse 3, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces and the dung of your offerings, and you'll be taken away with it. That is pretty graphic. God says, I'm going to take the barnyard scrapings, and I'm going to throw it on your face and on your offerings, because that is exactly what they are worth. And as a priesthood, that is exactly what you are worth. 
That's a pretty ugly way to say it. You think you're bringing something acceptable. God says, this is exactly how I evaluate that. Skin-deep worship is not something that God takes pleasure in. He will not honor it. He will curse it. Because God had made these wonderful promises to them, specifically the priests. He says, I've made a covenant with the house of Levi. He set them apart for what should have been a place of tremendous honor. That family, that priestly family, had the honor of serving in the presence of the Lord. You realize no one else could do that. No one else could just go into the temple, into the holy place. No one would even dream of going into the Holy of Holies. It was only one man and only one descendant of Levi. They alone served in the temple. They alone could have the offerings brought to them, and they would take and sacrifice them on the altar. They were charged with the teaching of Israel. They were supposed to not only keep the law, but teach the law to help people understand. They had the wonderful, beautiful privilege of helping people see what God was like in encouraging them toward obedience, in encouraging their faith, in spurring them on toward knowledge and obedience and worship and all the blessing that that brought. And God said, you're not doing it. You have taken all the beauty of that covenant that I gave you and you've thrown it away. Verse 7 says, the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. The people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way and you've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I make you despised and abased before all people, inasmuch as you did not keep my ways, but you show partiality in your instruction. You were supposed to be doing this. You were entrusted with this precious task, and you continue to violate it. Instead of causing the people to obey, you cause them to stumble. Which makes sense, by the way. If you don't know how to worship, you absolutely cannot lead others in their worship. And God says, because you have dirtied and sullied and profaned and violated this covenant, I'm going to sully your name. I'm going to abase you in front of the people. See, you reject me and my covenant and all the blessing that go along with that. And so in turn, I'm going to reject you. And then he moves on in the rest of chapter 2, all the way up until verse 17, which we're going to attach to next week is this final question that Malachi anticipates and answers. And that's in verse 13 and 14. Uh, The theme starts in verse 10, but the actual question is down in verse 13 and 14, and it's this. The people are going to groan and cry out to the Lord, but he doesn't respond. He doesn't accept their offerings, and the people are going to ask why. Why doesn't God listen to us? Why isn't God doing anything the way that we think he should? And the answer to that question, why doesn't God listen, is twofold in what he gives them. And the first part starts in verse 10. God says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Here's what he's saying. God is our father. He called us into being as a nation. He has been faithful and he has called us to be faithful. And yet, as they dealt with one another, the people were anything but faithful. faithful. They were absolutely faithless to one another. Reason number one, why God does not listen to them is because they have failed to love others in the way that God has called them to. So the covenant is profaned, it's dirty, it's broken. How have they done that? Verse 11, Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. The first way that they have demonstrated their faithlessness The first way that they have failed to love, as God has called them to love, is they are entering into marriages which God said they have no business taking part of. 
Under the law, they were supposed to keep their marriages within the covenant community of Israel. Why? So they wouldn't be led astray. So they wouldn't wander off into idolatry and all of the discipline that that brings, but they didn't care. They're marrying whoever they want to. Now, this was a problem throughout Israel's whole history. Solomon's wives were a problem for him. Jezebel and Ahab, all the way through Israel's history, this is a problem, and apparently it is still a problem under Malachi, under Ezra, under Nehemiah, even after the exile. See, the reality is God cares about marriage. God designed marriage. God gave marriage its purpose. God said that when marriage happens, it unites two people. It brings them into oneness and unity. And here's the problem. If you try to bring into unity someone who doesn't worship the way you do, then things go sideways very, very quickly. They are dishonoring God's call for marriage. And to dishonor God's design for marriage is to dishonor the God who designed that marriage in the first place. Their marriages were an expression of their worship, and their failed marriages were an expression of failed worship. They're failing to love one another as they should, and it's a big deal. Look at verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. See, God doesn't just reject their offering. He rejects them. You don't get to bring an offering in obedience to the temple while you live in disobedience at home. There's no separation between those two things. And then we see that question expressed in verse 13, 14. They bring their offerings. It says they cover the Lord's altar with tears. There's weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it. But you say, why does he not? Boy, these people looked sincere. They absolutely wanted God's blessing. They wanted things to go well with them. And when it didn't, they went to God with external sorrow tears, wailings, the questions, why does he not? Well, one reason is they were unfaithful in the way that they married, and the second way that it works works itself out in their lives starts in verse 14. So you say, why does he not? Why isn't he listening? And this is what he says, because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Not only were they marrying the wrong people, they were being faithless to the ones that they did marry. And God said, "Uh, on the day that you were married, I was there. A silent witness between you and the wife of your youth and those covenant promises that you made. I witnessed that. And as you violate that covenant, you violate my covenant. Apparently, they're divorcing Jewish wives to marry foreign women. And in the process, they're rebelling on two fronts. Marriage matters to God. You see, God created marriage to be the foundation of the family, and the family then to be kind of the bedrock of the culture in general. As marriage goes, so goes the family. And as the family unit goes, so goes the culture. You can see that in ours. That is a timeless truth about what happens. Marriage is designed to be this permanent union, a joining of two in one, unity Love, affection, faithfulness. Marriage is a unique picture of the character of God Himself. Unity and distinction. Love and faithfulness. And they continually violate that. They treat marriage like it's disposable, and they treat marriage like they're allowed to define it on their own terms. 
And then we come to verse 15, and this is one of the most difficult verses to translate uh, in the Minor Prophets. It's definitely the most difficult one in the book. And so uh, in the ESV and NASB and NIV, you're going to get some different translations. Um, so if I read this and it doesn't sound like what your Bible has, that, that's okay. In the ESV, verse 15, did not, did not he make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Like the NASB says that, that no one with a remnant of the spirit has done this. But the main point through all of that is clear that through these marriages, God desired to bring about godly offspring. When God told Israel, do not marry the nations, it is not because he considered them inferior as other human beings. This is not a racial superiority thing. The problem was it was a purity matter. God said, don't marry outside of the covenant community of Israel because ultimately they will lead you into false worship. They will lead you into idolatry and they'll lead you into rebellion. And rebellion brings what? It brings discipline. God said, here's the path. You marry these other women. They will lead you into idolatry. And when you practice idolatry, I will discipline you. And it will be painful and you'll lose the blessing and you'll lose that covenant blessing that you're supposed to have in living with me. On the other hand, if you treat marriage as I intend and you marry faithfully, then you will ideally move toward producing children who you raise in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord, who will then go on living in worship and obedience, who will then go on living in the blessings of those covenant promises that I made for you. It was a good thing for them. God set that up as a guard and a guide for them. The Lord said they should walk in obedience so that it would go well with them. But they threw that away. And then verse 16, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. NASB, more direct translation. I hate divorce, says the Lord. But no matter what your translation is again there, it doesn't change the clear meaning. Divorce disunifies what God has called to unity. It is a painful, disruptive, destructive thing. And again, we have to talk about that with sensitivity and compassion because it's a reality that we live in. Uh, But there's a reason that God designed marriage the way that he did. It's supposed to be like this picture of a garment uh, that covers with peace. That's That's the other side of the garment of violence here. It's a unifying thing, a binding thing. And God says that divorce breaks that picture. Divorce is a ripping apart. It's a breaking up of something that's supposed to be unified. And so there's always pain. There's always a cost to that. There's always a disruption there. The warning is they're taking marriage lightly when God doesn't. They're assuming that they can not only worship the way that they want, they're assuming that they can live in their horizontal human relationships any way that they want, and it doesn't impact their worship. And God says it absolutely does. There is no distinction. They're told to be faithful to one another because they serve a God who is always faithful. And that's the first three big questions that get asked in the book of Malachi. But all of these questions that Malachi brings up, they kind of circle around one big question, and that's this. Who is this God that you claim to worship? That's, that's the big question. Who is God? Very famous quote by A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God? If Israel was asked that, what do you think about God? They would have not acknowledged that God was. They would have said, absolutely, we believe in God. 
They would have even said that he was their God. The problem was uh, the God that they had in their minds wasn't holy. At least he wasn't holy enough to really care about their holiness. The God that they had conceived of in their minds wasn't powerful, or at least not powerful enough to move them toward obedience in their response. The God that they had in their mind wasn't pure, or at least not pure enough to demand purity in the way that they lived and in the way that they worshipped. So who is God? Because our answer to that question will determine how we live in response. Here's three questions for us to think about. First of all, uh, do we question God's love? Israel asked a pretty bold question there, didn't they? God, do you actually love us? How have you loved us? And it's tough to read that, knowing their history. But if we're honest, you and I have a tendency in our flesh to respond the same way. Not when things are good. When things are good, it's very easy to see how God loves us. When circumstances are difficult, when things are painful, when things are downright unfair, uh, most of us would never say it out loud, but many of us have probably asked something along the lines of, God, what are you doing, and do you even care? And again, there is room for real and serious heartfelt questions in our faith. There is room to cry out, how long, O Lord? David did it. Habakkuk did it. The difference was they always came back to relying and resting in the character of God. There's room to say, God, I know true things about you, but I don't feel them or see them right now. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That is a genuine, humble prayer. This isn't that. This was God, you say this. I don't believe that because I see that you are doing this. It's okay to have questions and struggles. It is sinful to question the character of God. We would do well to remember what God has done. We're people with very short-term memories. It's good for us to look back, as it would have been good for Israel to look back over their history with God and to see His faithful hand in their lives. Second, and maybe more difficult, do we consider our offerings... Do we offer to God what we would be embarrassed to offer others? We go to church, usually, and we sing the songs when we like them, and we give when we feel like we can afford it. And after all, if we do all those things, what does God really have to complain about? We're better than most. The question is, do we worship God as if we truly believed what we read and studied and sang that we believed about him? Do we offer our best? Or is worship ever a weariness to us? There's some difficult questions we should ask, and it's okay. I don't ask these things thinking of any one person other than myself, same as always. I don't ask these things to be provocative. I think all of us need to search our hearts and our conscience, but sometimes it's good to ask the hard questions. If you're at home watching this online, there might be a thousand good reasons for that. Or it might very well be that you're not part of the body because you don't want to be part of the body. It's a question worth asking. Sometimes we show up to church when there's not a game on or a tournament that weekend. 
it's worth asking whether we're actually worshiping God as if He was the priority. Sometimes we go through a season where we don't have a ministry that we're serving in. And sometimes that's for good and valid and restful reasons, and sometimes it's just because there's no way that I really feel like I want to serve right now. Sometimes we give when it's convenient and when we think we can afford it rather than giving, trusting that God will meet our needs. Those aren't easy questions. Again, they're certainly not questions that I can answer for you or that you can answer for me that they're worth wrestling over. If God is who we claim that He is, He deserves not only our best, He deserves our everything. And finally, do we love others well? Uh, man, I, I am so quick to separate how I worship God from how I treat others. It's so easy to see them as different. And God says you can't separate them. The Pharisees came and they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, with everything. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have. But then he was very quick to say what? The second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You don't get to separate those two things. To love and worship God is to love and serve others. For some of us, that means not only external faithfulness, but heart devotion to the spouse that God has given us, and some of us are failing to love them as we should. To some of us, it means the school situation or even the work situation that we are content to give less than 100%, in, and yet God has called us to worship in the way that we respond to those authorities. For some of us, it means that we sit next to people in church and we praise the Lord for name tag Sundays when the names are there, but we really don't have any hard intention of getting to know these people, and yet God has called us to love one another. Let's not be lulled or fooled into thinking that we can sing and study on Sunday and then have the rest of the week to ourselves and still call it worship. Malachi asks difficult questions, but Malachi speaks of a great and merciful God who calls us to repentance and restoration in those things. Let's pray. Lord, we're confronted in this book with the people who had the right answers, who knew the right things, who were probably fairly comfortable. And Lord, uh, that's difficult because we are comfortable. We're not always comfortable with what's going on, but Lord, in general, we can move through our lives and we can try to separate the spiritual from the normal, the standard. Uh, Lord, purge us of that. Help us to see that all that we do is either an act of worship or an act of rebellion. Lord, remind us that you are holy and that you've called us to be holy. And Lord, remind us that you are faithful, faithful to forgive to cleanse us as often as we realize how far short we fall. Lord, you are good and kind, and you restore us. So, Lord, help us to press on, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and as often as we fail, to seek your forgiveness and to sing and rejoice in your wonderful forgiveness and mercy and restoration. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.